Well, good morning, everybody. I'm uh, glad to, to see all of you. Your pictures here are beautiful. Y'all look great. Um, last week, Colin, as you'll remember, preached on recognizing resurrection-like actions in the world around us, and he challenged us to see um, resurrection in uh, all, all that we encounter. And he, and he then told us to, to enact resurrection in a way as Christ's body, to uh, pursue the continuation of uh, Christ's person and work uh, as his people. And this week, I want to talk about speaking the resurrection. So last week we spoke, or last week we, we talked about acting the resurrection. Today, I, I'd like to speak with you all about speaking the resurrection, speaking the good news. One of the most distinct components of uh, Christianity is really its proclamatory nature. Christianity has always been a uh, preachy religion, and all of those who have been frustrated by this part of our faith, they've actually gotten it exactly right. Ultimately, of course, our words should live out the integrity of our own actions, but first, we are a people who cannot stop speaking about what Jesus has done even in the midst of our moral failures, of our greed, our lack of faith, and of our brokenness. Christians do have something to say. And even though we don't always wear it well, it is nonetheless our calling, and it's inevitable. My very first internship as an aspiring clergy person was at a church. It was outside of Charleston. And that summer, there was this terrible boating accident. There were some high schoolers who were out on the water enjoying the beauty of the day. And as they were going along, there was a hidden sandbar that was just below the surface. And they hid it. And one boy from the church died. And I was in my mentor's office when we found out about this. The secretary came in and told us all that had happened. She said, the family would like for you to preach at the funeral. My mentor Rob said, He'd had plans that weekend, but of course, he would do it. Of course. She left, and then I turned to him and said, Rob, I'm, I'm so sorry. You've you got to figure out something to say for this kind of thing. And he turned to me, and he immediately said something I will never forget. He said, I do not have to figure out something to say. I get to say something. Because we are the only ones who have something to say right now. And he was exactly right Christians have something to say because Easter has given us something to say. That's exactly why Martin Luther called the church famously a mouth house. We are preachy and we cannot help it because it's built into the heart of who we are. And our readings today tell us all about this. In the gospel reading we have, which is the longest account of the resurrection appearances, Jesus reveals himself to the disciples in the town of Emmaus And they immediately travel in the middle of the night, it says, back to Jerusalem, seven miles away, to be with the others so that they can tell them what they've seen. Because they had to tell others what they'd seen. They couldn't keep it in. And then the Acts reading continues this. Remember, this is after Peter has reconciled with Jesus, whom he's betrayed, and he's charged to take care of the other disciples. And they're all back in Jerusalem. Jesus uh, miraculously ascends into heaven, And the spirit descends and the day of Pentecost happens. And all of the people in Jerusalem have no idea what's going on. What happened to Jesus' body? What are these reports of him being alive? Why are all of these people speaking in different languages? 
And then Peter, who remember is an uneducated fisherman of no real social influence, stands up in the middle of the crowd and he starts to speak. He says, people of Israel, this Jesus who you crucified, he is the Messiah. God raised him from the grave and all of the scriptures testify to to this. And then surprisingly, the people are moved and they cry out, what should we do? And Peter says, point blank, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ. And then 3,000 people do it. How's that for a sermon? I don't know that that would go that well in a lot of churches. My question is, what just happened? What in the world happened that 3,000 people are told that they wrongfully killed the Messiah, and then they publicly repent and are baptized? How does Peter do this? What happened? And the reading gives us clues, and the first one is obvious. They were cut to the heart. I think in the West, it's so common for us to think of the Christian faith as a set of propositions. We have to intellectually assent to each of these sort of bullet points of what we believe. And and that's true. We have creeds that, that involve this, and that's good. We need that to center ourselves. But it's important to also remember that there is no cognitive assent. There is no belief without the heart. Martha Nussbaum, a famous classicist and legal scholar, the University of Chicago, She's written in great depth on this subject, the relationship between emotions and truth. She writes, Belief is sufficient for emotion, and emotion is necessary for full belief. You see, belief and emotion, they're not two different things, but belief is required in order to have real emotions. And likewise, emotion will necessarily involve full belief. That is, if you are emotional about something, if you're passionate about it, it's because you actually believe it. Thus, when propositions are fully believed, when we fully believe something, those beliefs take on flesh. You believe things with all of who you are, not with your minds, but with all of you. And so when Peter stands up in front of all these other Jews to declare to them that they'd gotten it all wrong, it's because he too had betrayed his master. He said, all of this is one who had betrayed Jesus three times and then was then forgiven. He says, repent, because I did it too. And so it cut to the heart. It cut them to the heart. Now, the other thing that moved these 3,000 people to repent and be baptized was scripture itself. The real content of Peter's proclamation that the lectionary unfortunately leaves out was actually the Old Testament. Peter says, look at all of these details. And he goes on to quote all of these Old Testament passages. And he says, see how they all point to Jesus as the Messiah. See how they all describe him being raised up. And then the same thing exactly happens in our gospel reading. Remember, on the road to Emmaus, the unrecognized Jesus, it says, interpreted to them all of the things concerning himself. And later as they're around the table after dinner and they realize who it is, scripture says, did our hearts not burn within us? as he opened to us the scriptures. See, the same thing happens. Peter's betrayal and reconciliation with Jesus is what renders the heart, but it's the coherence of the scriptures that renders his logic. One of the most overlooked apologetics for the Christian faith, that's absolutely mind-blowing to me, is the coherence of the Christian canon. 
It simply should not exist in the way that it does. The Bible is, of course, one of the most complex collections of documents that our world has ever seen. It is a remarkable feat of editing and gathering and pulling texts together. And the more remarkable feat is that when you use Jesus to see all of it, they all fit together. It all points with this dramatic coherence to Jesus himself. And it is truly miraculous. Don't forget that. It is remarkable. In my own life, I personally would not be a Christian if it were not for the coherence of the Christian scriptures. And I've spent huge portions of my life studying this. Now, the final reason that Peter's proclamation is so powerful is because, of course, it's personal. Peter was, in some ways, Jesus' closest disciple. Peter, of course, spent three years with Jesus. He left his job. He left his home. He spent all of these countless days walking with Jesus, eating with him, listening to him. And so when Peter stood up to speak, he wasn't explaining an idea. He was using scripture to tell people about someone that he loved. And that's a fundamental point about Christian proclamation. Christian proclamation is primarily about telling people of a person. Of course, Christianity, as all of us know, is a missionary religion, and that has received some criticism, of course. But it's not a missionary religion because I'm right and you're wrong. It's a a missionary religion because we've seen the redemptive work of God in person on display in the love of Christ and in the power of his resurrection, and so we have something to say. There's a great illustration of this in uh, Dante's Purgatorio. There's this, it's this part where Dante meets this childhood friend he hasn't seen in years and years. And they take a while to catch up. They're talking. And then the friend basically asks, wait, are, are you the one who wrote all of these famous poems? Dante replies, yes. He says, I am one who, when love breathes in me, takes note. And in whatever way he dictates within, that way I signify. I am one who, when love breathes in me, takes note. You see, Christian proclamation isn't about proving people wrong. It's it's not about being right. It's about being filled up. It's about being overflowing with God's love. It's about issuing forth the breath of God. It's just like, as Peter says, in a few chapters after our Acts reading, he's in front of a bunch of religious authorities again, and he says, whether it is right or not to obey you, I don't know. You will have to judge. But we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And you see, that's altogether different than an argument. It is an embodied expression that flows out of God's own work. And I think that that can change You're my, our lives right now. So many of you I know during this time feel like this is a period of of holdover. It's a time of loneliness or merely getting through. You're struggling to keep your family all together or just trying to make it to the next paycheck. But that is not what this time is. This time, counterintuitive to everything this world might tell you, is a time to be filled This is a time for you to have the Spirit of God come work in your heart even when you're frustrated about everything that this moment demands. This is a time for you to grow in awareness of Scripture's coherence. And it's a time for you to be sent out 
with something to say because you've been empty, but God filled it up. This is the time for you to become the kind of person that God uses to speak. In closing, some of you might remember a story in the news about a year ago. There was this young man named John Chow. He was a missionary in his mid-20s. And he decided that he wanted to reach out to the Sentinelese people. The Sentinelese are a remote tribe off the coast of India. And they are still one of the last truly isolated people groups in the world. They have no interest in human contact with the outside world. And when people inadvertently end up on their island, they are usually killed. So Chow spent years preparing for this. He went through quarantine. He received vaccinations. He learned languages. He went through a missionary agency that trained him. And he eventually hired out a boat to take him near the island, where he then got out of the boat into a small kayak, loaded it with gifts and such, and then he paddled over to initiate contact with his tribe. Nobody knows exactly what happened, but fishermen in the area have reported that he was killed with bow and arrows and then buried in the beach. As you can imagine, this provoked a huge outflow of criticism. And there were good reasons for it, of course. Chow could have easily carried diseases, even still with the quarantine, etc. He could have uh, hurt this vulnerable people group. Chow went alone. He didn't go with other teammates or uh, missionary members. Furthermore, it's actually illegal to go on this island. And finally, he was trying to engage a people who, who did not want to engage with him, clearly. And in large part, most of the articles that you read are highly critical of his effort. They consider it foolish or just plain ignorant. And it's a complex case. I don't, wanna, I don't know what altogether I think of it. But I do know this. I'm certain of this. When Chow stepped out of his little kayak and he carried his Bible in his one hand and his gifts in the other, he wasn't doing it because he had an argument. He was doing it because he had had some experience of Jesus' love and he felt absolutely compelled to share it. He could not hold it back. And I realize most of us here will not feel compelled to be missionaries, but I'm here to tell you that when you draw close to the Lord and he fills you up, you will have something to say. So this is not a time of pure idleness or coping, or existential dread. This is a time where you and I are being shaped by God and conformed to the image of Christ to then tell of his work. This is a time for all of us to be touched by God's spirit, galvanized in his word, and pushed out with his good news. Might we do that today? In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.